Pleasure to be talking to you again, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Nice to speak to you as well, Shane. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so a bit of a change of topic. We usually talk about uh, Mr. Trump, uh, but uh, we're going to switch to this side of the border for a change. Uh, as you and I both know, uh, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario uh, decided to try and threaten the quote-unquote nuclear option uh, when faced with a court challenge he didn't like and, and invoked the notwithstanding clause. Now, uh, there's been a court challenge as of yesterday morning, which means uh, that he won't have to go down that road anymore, but it, it does raise a, a flurry of conversation. And I'm curious, I know that there's a bunch of aspects to this, but uh, the notwithstanding clause itself, I'm just curious uh, from your legal perspective, what's your opinion on this thing? Well, I mean, the notwithstanding clause, I mean, is effect- the best way for your listeners to understand the notwithstanding clause is that it's the product of a historical compromise, right? Um, on the road to um, uh, having the provinces agree, and we all know that Quebec never did agree, uh, to um, signing on to have uh, a distinctly Canadian uh, constitution, including uh, the centerpiece, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There was always this concern that doing that would undo Canada's tradition as a country where parliamentary uh, supremacy ruled, meaning that ultimately uh, where there was a, um, some kind of a conflict, that the will of parliament would be supreme above any other. And that was the sort of system that we inherited from our history from, um, you know, from the Commonwealth and from, from, from Britain. Um, but of course, the um, modernizing trend has been in most uh, democratic countries, and particularly in the American model, is to have um, you know judicial review where the constitution is supreme, right? And so what happened when 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 the um, parties were sitting together and hammering out the details of the charter? Some of the provincial premiers were worried that they would lose, um, you know, that their that their own provinces would lose that kind of their own version of parliamentary supremacy, that is the supremacy of their legislatures, and be struck down by an assertive or muscular Supreme Court for charter reasons where something was still, in their opinion, the best thing for their particular populations. And also, in keeping with the idea that, you know, the sovereignty of the provinces is always sacrosanct. So in order to make the charter happen, despite all of these differences, the compromise was that Section 33 would be included and that some of the fundamental rights in the Constitution or in the Charter, including some of the most important ones, would be subject um, under certain conditions to the override clause, uh, uh, namely Section 33. And over the course of Canada's sort of 40-odd years since we patriated the Charter, um, Quebec routinely used the notwithstanding clause to register its um, its uh, opposition to the Charter generally up until around 1985 when it stopped inserting routine riders in there. Uh, other than that, there's been sporadic use by different um, provinces on different occasions, but the general uh, uh, the general rule has been uh, that it's not to be used because it sort of interrupts the normal process and undermines judicial review, the rule of supremacy of the Constitution. So, when, and this is the first time Ontario, Canada's most populous province, uh, its economic driver, it, in, in a way an outsized engine for the country, has used or attempted to use the notwithstanding clause. And the way that it was used by Premier Ford and his government was very preemptive and in, and and really provocative because he was used the notwithstanding um, clause in connection with something which had never been even campaigned on or discussed before in what appeared to be connected to a, 
a personal vendetta, and in a way that looked really to, and I think was um, sort of anti-democratic, okay? And as well, and, and so, and he, he also um, triggered the notwithstanding clause um, immediately after getting a trial court judgment that he didn't like against legislation he was trying to push through, uh, rather than even waiting for the appeals process to go. And as you alluded to in your opening comments, Shane, the, the, court, the, the Ontario Court of Appeal has since reversed the, the application court, which is the Ontario Superior Court's finding that the law as proposed was unconstitutional, uh, that it was a curb on uh, freedom of expression rights, thereby removing the need for uh, Mr. Ford and his government to invoke the um, notwithstanding clause for the time being. But I think the ripple effects of this are to normalize a practice which has basically been uh, you know, largely conventionally not used as a means of sort of um, not undermining or, um, you know, creating uncertainty in our constitutional order. But I think the constitutional order itself always had this latent defect in it. And the reality is, is Section 33, at the hands of a premier or a prime minister who's who's not in good faith or who's willing to sort of push the system to its outer limits to undermine court rulings they don't like, that tool is available for them to use. And it's very dangerous in that respect. Yeah, uh, before we delve into an interesting aspect you brought up, I'm curious uh, from that that, that danger uh, that danger issue you've raised. I mean, uh, how much of a concern do you have now that you've seen Mr. Ford raise it the way he had? Because to me, I know there was a lot of debate about the notwithstanding clause itself and the aftermath of his threat. But to me, I think the biggest worry was it was a reflection of his personal character. The the fact he chose to go immediately to sort of the quote unquote nuclear option. Oh, certainly. I, I think it was. I mean, a charitable reading would be to say, well, it's just a sign of peak and inexperience that he would do this or just kind of not really knowing how to react to a court ruling that he didn't like. But, I mean, you know, he's been supported in doing this by all kinds of people who should know better, including his um, attorney general, Carolyn Mulroney, who was a, a leadership candidate against him. He's been supported by the party in doing that. And in fact, I saw on CBC the other day, I saw several former premiers, including our own former premier, um, Christy Clark, Brad Wall, who once invoked the uh, notwithstanding clause in, in Saskatchewan when he was premier, um, and Jean Charest, the former premier of Quebec, liberal premier, all talking about the notwithstanding clause, and, and particularly um, premier, former premier Wall of, of Saskatchewan, perhaps surprisingly for some former premier Clark of British Columbia, you know, were very strident in taking the position that um, that Section 33 is there for a reason, that it's available to the provinces, and that it has to be used to protect provincial sovereignty from time to time. And they didn't really object to uh, what Mr. Ford uh, was doing. Now, Mr. Charest had a slightly more nuanced view, but also wasn't as skeptical as you might expect. So the provincial premiers themselves aren't necessarily going to speak out about this, and former provincial premiers aren't necessarily going to do so because they like the idea that they might be able to use it. Um, and so, you know, it's always been there. It's always been a latent danger. And so anybody who was willing to abuse it can, and, 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 and that we are seeing that happen. I think Mr. Ford's temperament is a concern. Um, and I think certainly, you know, the, it, the, the using it in such a kind of petty way, uh, again, on an issue he didn't even campaign on before the thing's exhausted through appeals, it shows a kind of, yeah, it is a kind of authoritarian personality that sort of shines through there. I don't think that should surprise anybody. My sense is that, you know, Mr. Ford and the 
Ford Nation that elected him represents a similar kind of current in our own society as does the one that, you know, sought to make America great again with Mr. Trump's election or the one that sought to remove the UK from the EU. I think that there's something common sort of flowing through our politics and, it, and Canada's is as I've, you, the terms I've used, I said, it's, it's not immune from this. Uh, yeah, I, and I would tend to sort of agree with that. Although, uh, to, to refer back to your your uh, take on Premier Christy Clark, yeah. uh, while she did sort of surprise by saying she's all for it, I would note that she never once threatened to use it, brought it up in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. And, and she did face yeah. some, some court challenges that she didn't like at the teacher's front, for example. So yeah. I found her comments a little puzzling because it, after the fact, they don't they don't ring all that genuine. But um, yeah, yeah, no, it was it was it, look whether you're a fan of Premier a uh, former Premier uh, Christy Clark or not, and I'm not a huge fan, she didn't invoke it as, as premier, and, but she certainly went out of her way in that interview to make the case for it, you know, so I was, I, I was a bit surprised. Yeah, me too. Uh, you brought up a very interesting aspect of this I want to dive into now. There's sure. been a lot of debate around the notwithstanding clause, Mr. Ford, Ontario, the issue at hand, which sparked the threat. Uh, but you've written a, a column, which I, I think raises a pretty pertinent issue that, uh, that that municipalities, from a legal perspective, are are hanging out in a branch all alone and ready to be plucked by whomever has the has the attitude to do so. Yes. So this is an aspect of our constitutional structure that I think Canadians only become vaguely aware of from time to time uh, when, they're, when, when it reaches a crisis point. But it, let's be clear, there are two coordinate sovereign levels of government in Canada, each which are completely independent, as I say, and sovereign within their sphere. That is the provincial governments and the federal governments. Okay, So they, their power is divided under our constitution, under the division of powers. And the, each in their own area, they're, they're sovereign and can do as they want. And where there are areas of overlap or conflict, the courts have developed meaningful ways to address those conflicts on a case-by-case um, uh, basis. And that is the nature of our federal system, and it largely works at the federal or provincial um, levels. The problem is that there's no place for cities or municipalities in the constitutions other than as basically a subject which is under the jurisdiction of the various provincial legislatures, right? So what that means is that all of the in, uh, all of the um, legislation that allows cities to pass bylaws, for example, to run their municipalities and to offer public services are based on statutory power, which is granted to them by the provincial governments, right? And that statutory power isn't constitutionally guaranteed or protected, and it can be pulled back, right? And so in various ways, so for example, what we see happening in Toronto is where everybody would agree a municipal election is an important way for people to have their democratic voices heard in the context of issues which are close to their, um, you know, everyday lives at the most local level of government. It's certainly, that is controlled by you know, city councils and municipal governments ultimately have some degree of autonomy because the province gives it to them through statute. But what, it, what the province gives, uh, they can take away. So then that raises the question, is it time to look at enshrining uh, the authority of a municipality sort of equally within, within the context of the Constitution that the other two levels of government are, or no? Ah, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, as soon as you go into this question of, I mean, to my mind, you could probably tell from what I'm saying that I don't even think the Section 33 is something that should be in the Constitution. I mean, if I had my druthers, we'd amend the Constitution to remove Section 33. Now, by the way, other legal scholars, um, lawyers, commentators, policymakers have different and valid opinions on that, but that that's mine. Now, on the question of cities, well, same thing, right? Like, yeah, I think perhaps we should consider 
ways in which we need to reform or revise the Constitution to recognize, for example, the importance of cities, but also potentially the importance of um, allowing a coordinate level of sovereignty to First Nations as well. These are all important questions. But all of these questions involve opening up the, the Constitution itself to amendment debates. And, you know, for folks that are, I guess, as old as you and I are, Shane, and we're not that old, but we're old enough to remember, at least when we were kids, the Charlottetown and Meech Lake debacles, uh, as well as ultimately the referendum on Quebec uh, independence in 1995, as being very uh, high moments of tension for our country, and ones which usually our political leaders and most opinion leaders have said we've got to stay away from. We have to find a way to avoid even getting into the issue of constitutional amendment. But I'm not sure how long we can avoid the issue, and I'm not sure how many generations will go before we can reopen and begin to think about these things. And I certainly think as a as a constitutional law teacher, I tell my students, you know, your job isn't just to sort of celebrate how great the Constitution is, it's to think about how it might be made better and how we might imagine revising our social contract effectively in the future, however difficult that may be. I was struck in Mr. Ford's move that uh, in railing against the courts and raising the specter of, of, of invoking the notwithstanding clause that uh, he made the point, well, hey, the courts aren't elected, I am. Uh, but I thought, you know, the reverse is also true. You're using this to uh, crush, essentially, how Toronto City operates on the threshold of a municipal election for people who are duly elected. It was an interesting contrast. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this this is a very troubling thing, and this is where I do draw the line between the sort of otherwise seemingly disparate things like the Trump phenomenon or Brexit and what's happening here, right? Because remember, Brexit was in part driven by the fact that a lot of, you know, sort of um, – you know, uh, angry populist voters didn't like the fact that, you know, for example, that the UK was being subject to be having its laws overruled by European courts, right, by, and by European laws and regulations. Um, just like um, the, a lot of the people who supported, you know, Mr. Trump were skeptical of um, liberal judges that they viewed as, as having a, a political viewpoint. Um, and Mr. Trump himself has made comments to the effect of disparaging judges. His own Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, once commented of a federal district court decision in Hawaii, which he didn't like, why would I be bound by some island in the Pacific? Not, and these, all of these comments, like Mr. Ford's comment, he was elected, I wasn't, belie a lack of understanding about the nature of um, our societies. Our societies in Western democracies are, have two pillars. One is democracy, and the other is the rule of law, and they're both in a delicate equilibrium. So that, and so what that means is that sometimes the rule of law offsets the will of the majority. If the will of the majority, as expressed in, for, for example, a popularly elected government, undermines fundamental rights which have been agreed to in the Constitution. In that case, the rule of law means that the simple fact that a majority has elected a government doesn't mean that that government can run roughshod over uh, people's rights. Because I think wisely, you know, the people who invented, you know, the modern form of the Constitution some three or four hundred years ago recognized that just having pure majoritarian governments, which were completely unhinged would mean, in fact, that the majority bullied the minority in many cases and that that wasn't conducive to a civil society. So this argument then that, you know, judges aren't elected and I am, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Of course, that's the point. The judges are there to act as a check on somebody who might be motivated by political or otherwise suspect um, motivations and who might be willing to break laws that reflect deeper and more widely held values than the ones reflected in their own electoral mandate. Perfect. Um, why don't we switch to the NAFTA topic here before I take up too much of your time? 
Uh, NAFTA renegotiations ongoing, point of contention, been uh, been long sort of a, on the table now with a bunch of different back and forth. Uh, I know that uh, you're not overly familiar with the intricacies of trade law itself, but I am curious from your time in the United States, uh, what you read into some of the rhetoric and the politics around the table as, uh, I don't know, all the three sides of this table jockey for position and Donald Trump makes his threats about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And there's this deadline of uh, if Canada chooses or not to, to join, join our accord with Mexico, et cetera. Uh, as you look at this sort of play out, what are you thinking? Well, you know, it's interesting. You're right. I'm not a trade lawyer, and there are a lot of people who have tremendous expertise in, the, in, in trade law, which is a very complex, robust area of law in its own. So I look at this primarily as a lawyer who, pra- who, who has practiced and, uh, in both the U.S. and Canada and who teaches constitutional law and, and, and who thinks a lot about, you know, the sort of intersection of law and politics, right? And so what I see happening here is I see um, a, a situation which is much more um, not kind of complex uh, than, it's, than is apparent, I think, to the public through the popular media reporting on it. And that's nobody's fault. It's because um, I think folks don't have enough or know enough about how the basic distribution of power works in our respective countries. But it's, it's not really, it's unlikely to be within the p- power of a president alone to, for example, um, you know, remove the United States from the NAFTA agreement. This is going to require uh, the involvement of uh, Congress as well, I believe. Now, again, there are different people who take slightly different opinions on that. But it's most agree that Congress is required to be involved here. So what's alarming about the latest sort of turn in the negotiations, I suppose, is that there's some evidence that the Republican majority in Congress, who, by the way, of course, may be out of here as of the elections in November, um, are, are now putting similar putting pressure on Canada um, and sort of getting directly involved in this, right? So if Congress was to sort of turn against Canada as a partner uh, as alongside the, uh, the Trump administration and it was impossible to reach a deal, yeah, I mean, that could be very... Um, serious, but I think up until now the thinking has been, you know, we're and I think there's been some success by the Canadian uh, government um, and by Christian Freeland uh, of basically engaging with Congress people. Uh, who are in American states which border with Canada or have major trade, major um, portions of their economic well-being tied to trade with Canada, to impress on those people how important NAFTA is and how they shouldn't support, um, you know, any kind of attempt to jettison the agreement or remove NAFTA from it. There's been some degree of success there, um, and that's been a good strategy because it kind of boxes Mr. Trump in, and it also is sort of on the understanding that he's not going to be there forever. Uh, he's not the most popular president, and you know his sort of philosophy. Philosophy, his economic uh, philosophy is not one necessarily shared by Congress. So, so I think rather than making it all about Mr. Trump, which always sort of creates uh, difficulties, this government has been reasonably good on this file about sort of dealing with you know his um, trade representatives and negotiating this, but also kind of maintaining the importance of the relationship with Congress and also of American businesses and Canadian businesses and labor unions on both sides of the border, sort of pointing out the importance of all this to both countries. So, but but you know ultimately. Uh, you know what's happened is is in the in a bewildering turn of events the um, uh, the outgoing Mexican president uh, who had just been defeated in an election um, t- sort of looks like he made a side deal uh, with the United States on on NAFTA and it puts a little more pressure on Canada and Mr. Trump is ratcheting up the rhetoric so at the end of the day we are in a vulnerable position I mean the, this country's trading economy is so closely tied to the United States that you know that this is it's no, it's no, it's a very serious matter indeed. But I don't think much blame can be put on uh, the federal government at this point because I think they've been playing it quite smartly. But you know, there's certainly uh, as soon as Congress turns, 
you know, that could be a problem. But again, like I say, there's an election coming up very shortly. So any artificial deadlines that the United States is claiming to be pursuing in negotiations, I mean, it may just be a form of brinkmanship more than anything. Yeah, and that's sort of my last question. I mean, with midterms looming, uh, do you think that there's a political impetus to kind of put the Republican stamp on a deal, get it out the door before we see an electoral change or whatever the shakeout is once the dust settles in the midterms? Or do you think that there's some patience there to be like, okay, uh, we'll just we'll just see how this thing develops, so regardless midterms or no. I mean, you know, the Trump agenda in general is is hinging on the midterms, right? So because everything will grind completely to a halt, especially if the. Democrats are able to recapture both uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. And I think the Senate's a real long haul. The House of Representatives is a good chance. Um, but, you know, this, this is sort of irrelevant to everything in the U.S. political, you know, universe. I mean, again, even the Kavanaugh, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination for the Supreme Court is, is in part is sort of, it has this kind of deadline ahead is that what would be better to have him um, and be able to run on having him appointed for the Republicans or to have this sort of, you know, uncertainty, a different pundits think different things. Um, but, you know, we're going to grind more and more, I think, into a period of, of, of deadlock, because I just think nobody wants the risks of wearing anything going into an election. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, that on Brett Kavanaugh's, well, I mean, getting somebody uh, conservative Supreme Court justice, I could see the political impetus there from the GOP, but I can't, I don't really have a good handle or a good read on sort of NAFTA. I mean, do they put a Trump stamp on, on some kind of a NAFTA deal? Is there an impetus there or no? Like, Kavanaugh, I kind of get the political political urgency. I don't I don't can't really read where the political urgency is on NAFTA. Well the political urgency is certainly greater for Canada than it is for the United States. I mean no question about it. This is not the Kavanaugh um, nomination battle is front and center in American news media and its consciousness. Neither NAFTA nor Canada's relationship with the United States is front and center in the American consciousness, right? So even in states where that economic relationship is very primary, it's still it's not. So for us as Canadians, it's a it's a major deal because we will know Canadians know that despite our attempts over the years to diversify our trading and economic relationships, the United States is basically it for us. And so you know we don't ultimately hold the power in the bargaining system. So for us, this is a very big deal, and it's hard to see where it'll go. But I don't think it's something that's going to drive politics that significantly, um, except in some states. Okay, like some of the industrial manufacturing heartland states, and again, like I say, states that have um, borders with Canada and significant trade with Canada, where if the impression is is that Trump's uh, undermining of NAFTA is hurting the local economy, it could drive votes to the Democrats. Uh, or if the, But if the perception is the reverse, that it's Mr. Trump standing up for American workers against Canadian you know, supply-side management regimes, which are kind of like a form of socialism, then it could drive uh, populist votes to Mr. Trump. I mean, it's, it's not, it, and it could break either way. All right, perfect. Uh, Jeff, always a pleasure, man. I've taken a lot of your time today and I always appreciate these chats. Look forward to them, in fact. Oh, uh, well, I really enjoy them as well, Shane. So thanks very much and thank you to your listeners.